degree to which militaries have the inherent ability to adjust quickly to the actual war that they're confronted with as opposed to the war, the picture of the war they had in their mind, that may define their success or failure. But I also think, as, as Dave mentioned, there was an unwillingness to recognize that these wars could go on. And, and this is where there was this failure of adaptability and a failure of imagination among the senior leaders in the Pentagon. Hey, welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and I'm joined by two guests for this episode, Dr. Nora Bensahel and retired Lieutenant General Dave Barnum. They are both visiting professors of strategic studies at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. They are also the authors of a recently published book called Adaptation Under Fire, How Militaries Change in Wartime. And that's the focus of our discussion. How do military forces adapt from the strategic level down to the tactical level during war? What are the hallmarks of an adaptable force? What types of leaders best create cultures of adaptability in their formations? How do such forces employ rapidly changing technologies? And something especially relevant for forces like the US military that have an extraordinarily robust set of doctrine governing how they operate, how does that doctrine play into this issue of adaptation? My guests tackled these questions and more in a conversation I really enjoyed having the opportunity to record. Before we get into it, as always, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to the MWI podcast, find it on your favorite podcast app. And if you have a second, please leave a rating or give it a review, which really helps us reach new listeners. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's talk military adaptation. Welcome back to the Modern War Institute podcast. My guests on this episode are retired Lieutenant General Dave Barno and Dr. Nora Bensahel. Dave and Nora, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Great to be here, John. So we are going to talk about a book that you uh, recently published. It came out a few months ago. The book is called Adaptation Under Fire, and the subtitle is How Militaries Change in Wartime. And there's a lot to unpack. I think a lot of interesting things to unpack in that title. But to sort of frame the conversation that we're going to have, the first question I want to kind of ask is, um, was it a deliberate choice to focus on adaptation rather than any of the um, sort of related topics that we sometimes hear more about, like innovation? And if so, what, why was that the choice that you made? I think that uh, we focus on adaptation during wartime, because for us, the starting point is a conflict has started. Are you prepared enough to adjust to what the conflict entails? As you rightly noted, the terms adaptation, innovation, transformation, even sometimes get thrown around to mean the same things. And we had to figure out the definition that we wanted to use for ourselves. What we ended up settling on is one that that uh, others have used, but is not uh, necessarily the way that everybody talks about it which is that innovation is something that happens during peacetime when you're preparing for what the next war is. But we define adaptation, again, specifically as what happens after a war starts, because you always have to prepare for the unknown during uh, periods of peace. You don't know what the next conflict is going to be. And as we'll talk about, you very often get it wrong. And so you need to adapt in order to be able to deal with whatever the situation is that you face on the battlefield. We sometimes think of innovation as the process, um, which sometimes means that there's a framework within which it takes place. And I think that's the way that institutionally we as a defense enterprise and, and the U.S. military approaches it. We create innovation task forces and cells within commands and, and things like this to sort of manage that process. Is there a, a differentiation along those lines with adaptation? Is it something that happens more organically and is maybe more uh, driven by individual leadership, for instance? Well, I think adaptation in the definition we're just using, since it doesn't, by our definition, begin until the war starts, it's immediately driven by the press of events. You're, you're under, in some cases, existential pressure as a nation to be able to adapt to the nature of the conflict you find yourself in. Uh, we write in the book that, you know, nations always go into wars preparing for a conflict that they have in their mind. You know, militaries have to think about what that next war is going to look like. And they have to make big decisions, big bets on things like their technology, what kind of weaponry are they going to buy on their on their doctrine? How are they going to train their force to fight on how they develop their leaders based upon that picture they have in their head of the next war? But we argue that the, the real test comes when the war arrives and the picture is 
far off kilter, that, that, that the, the degree to which militaries have the inherent ability to adjust quickly to the actual war that they're confronted with, as opposed to the war, the picture of the war they had in their mind, that may define their success or failure. So there's the, all those processes you talk about in the peacetime environment tend to immediately go by the wayside under the crush of time and pressure and deaths and casualties and battles that occur at the beginning, particularly the beginnings of wars, but throughout wars. And that's a, a real distinction we would make between, you know, kind of the day-to-day process of innovation that's, you know, much uh, much of interest in the Pentagon right now to what happens in wartime when you actually go to war and you have to figure it out quickly. And did you have a, when you, when you, you know, began the process, did you have in mind a sort of echelon of military formation that you really wanted to focus on? Were you looking at the, you know, battalion and company levels? Were you looking at kind of the operational levels, strategic levels? Or did you kind of go in with an open mind and say, let's look for where adaptation happens and structure the book accordingly? We wanted to look at both, uh, both at the tactical level and then at the either strategic or institutional level, um, you know, looking at the roles of, of staffs and uh, theater commanders, if not necessarily the grand strategic level, incorporating the role of, of political decisions. Because during wartime, you need adaptability in both. We develop a framework for our book that looks at uh, adaptability in the areas of doctrine, technology, and leadership. In doctrine, there really is no difference. There is very little movement in tactical doctrine that you need. There are different approaches on the battlefield, and we talk about that, but if it's, you know, doctrine tends to be formalized. So that's really only happening at one level. But when we talk about the role of technological adaptability and adaptability in leadership, we make a very explicit distinction in the book between looking at the tactical level on the one hand and then either the institutional or theater level uh, on the other. Um, and as we can talk about, you know, we found, especially in the recent wars, that tactical adaptability in all of those areas was really quite good, but there were some really notable failures at the institutional or theater level. So I think that framework was really interesting. You talked about doctrine, technology, and leadership. Was was there one that stuck out that, you know, was sort of first among equals, so to speak, um, that you would say is more important in terms of leading to successful outcomes on the battlefield? Well, well, we get to ask that question a lot, as you might expect, and sure. I think we certainly didn't go into the book with any uh, uh, particular bias towards one or the other, or even towards those three factors. Those kind of emerged as we began to think about this. But we ultimately, I think, would come out saying that leadership is the most decisive, that, that, that good leadership, uh, adaptive leadership at all levels, at the and, and here we would include the institutional level, which sometimes doesn't get talked about enough in a wartime. What happens back in the in the U.S., what happens in the Pentagon during the course of a war, as well as the theater strategic level. And then down at the tactical level, you know, your ability for those tactical commanders from, you know, special forces, A-team commanders all the way up to, you know, battalion brigade commanders in combat and sometimes a bit higher than that, their ability to adapt on the battlefield. So they can overcome a lot of failures in doctrine. They can overcome a lot of shortcomings in the technology, the weaponry, the equipment they have to deal with. But if you don't have effective adaptive leadership, you it doesn't matter how adaptive your doctrine is or how adaptive your technology is, it's ultimately going to not come together uh, when you're under the press, pressure of you know the battlefield. Yeah, and I'd add to that that uh, leaders make decisions about doctrine and technology as well. And so it's a little uh, hard to tease them out. That's one of the reasons why, you know, we say that at the end of the day, leadership is the first among equals uh, among the three things that we identify because, uh, you know, d- doctrine and technology and ways to use them don't come out of thin air. Leaders and, and people think about them. And that's why we think it, it is uh, probably the most important of the three. So then kind of switching gears to doctrine specifically, you know, and, and I probably have a bit of a, a, a bias that will be exposed here, but doctrine is sometimes quite rigid um, in, you know, by any definition in terms of the way it's written, in terms of how long it takes to evolve. I mean, you know, the army has been working, it still has a multi-domain operations concept that, you know, is a years long process of transforming that into doctrine. You look back to air land battle was a, was a lengthy process to sort of develop as our sort of doctrinal framework. Um, speaking, you know, mainly from a, from an army perspective, U.S. army perspective, is it possible to create adaptable doctrine? Um, you know, are there examples in history that we can kind of look to uh, where that was the case? 
No, I think there is. And I think, you know, many in the senior levels, at least in the U.S. military, would say that's the kind of doctrine we have. Of course, our doctrine is adaptable. We have agility and adaptability and flexibility in every third sentence throughout every one of our doctrinal manuals. So it must be there and it must be really important. And we're confident that we have adaptable doctrine. But, but of course, we really don't uh, unless the people that actually execute the doctrine believe that, have that instilled into how they think about fighting and believe they have the trust and confidence of their superiors to do things that are coloring outside the lines, particularly in combat. Uh, and that, that record, I'd say, even over the last 20 years, is very mixed. Uh, again, and this gets to the idea of mission command, which again is our governing philosophy of leadership in the U.S. military, you know, certainly very strongly in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Marine Corps. And there's plenty of exceptions where micromanagement trumped mission command in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, in the last two decades. And there's there's lots of military people who've written about that and talk about that. So there's always this, I think, tension between um, the ability to have trust and confidence and be willing to delegate to your subordinates to make, you know, decisions within what the military calls disciplined initiative, understanding what your commander's intent for the battle is, and then what what the prescriptions of doctrine actually tell you you should do. You know, doctrine is, is designed not to be a straitjacket. It's designed to be guidelines. Uh, but it, it's only effective as a guideline if leaders empower their subordinates to deviate from that. So it's it's a very mixed bag out there. And I think that's uh, peacetime armies tend to be much more, I think, rigid and structured and compliance based. And we, we write and have talked about that quite a bit. Uh, and wartime armies very quickly realize that if you're going to be successful, the American army's had a long history of this, uh, you, you've got to empower your junior leaders to go out and get things done and figure things out and make decisions and adjust and adapt from what they brought into the war in terms of, you know, that doctrinal manual they had in their hip pocket. You called the, in the book, you you mentioned FM 3-24, the 2006 uh, uh, counterinsurgency field manual that the U.S. Army published. Um, you know, I, I just mentioned, you know, I talked about multi-domain operations and how that's a lengthy process to turn that into doctrine. Um, some might say the fact that that, that FM 3-24 didn't come out until December 2006 was a slow process, that it was too slow. But I think that probably reflects more of uh, a, a, a slow sort of recognition that that's what we needed because the actual process of drafting and publishing uh, this particular manual was remarkably quick uh, compared to, you know, how, how quickly things typically move. What, what was necessary to make that happen? I think the answer to that is clear and dedicated leadership, right? Remember we said that leadership can affect doctrine and technology and the changes there. The The story of the counterinsurgency field manual is a really interesting one that we talk about in the book. And, and we describe it as in many ways, the exception that proves the rule, right? You're right. It was done in about a year through an extraordinary, literally extraordinary process, not one that is usually the way that doctrine is formed in the military because General Petraeus brought in a you know, tremendous number of outsiders to help write it and then to comment on it. And again, we track that in the book. But there had been efforts uh, to develop counterinsurgency doctrine in the two and a half, two and three quarter years before that, using the regular processes that just were not up to being able to do that. They didn't have the capacity to do it, even though some, some smart folks at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth saw the need for that, even when we were denying that at the strategic level that counterinsurgency was actually happening. They couldn't, they didn't have the capacity to build it very quickly. And so it took a really unusual aligning of the stars with a growing worsening of the situation in Iraq in particular. Uh, the fact that General Petraeus had a very high profile and, uh, you know, understood counterinsurgency from his own previous work and his own personal experience and, you know, just driving forward a process that did get it done quickly that avoided basically any element of the usual process for revising doctrine. So it's a, it's a positive example in certain ways, because you're right, when it got started, it got done very quickly, but it also indicts the usual structure for developing doctrine, which just couldn't keep up with that. Yeah, I think it's important to remember that, that the manual came out in late 2006. The United States had been at war since uh, September of 2001 in Afghanistan during that entire time. And I was there for 19 months of that from 03 to 05 and then in Iraq from you know March of 03 onward. And 
it took three years in Iraq and arguably five years uh, from the start of the war in Afghanistan to actually publish a new manual about the kind of war you were fighting. And so commanders in the field had to improvise, adapt, adjust. You know, I, I devised my own version of counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. We talk about Colonel Sean McFarlane, who is a brigade commander at Ahmadi in 2006 in Iraq, who devised his own counterinsurgency scheme for you know his area of operations. And so you saw some, I think, pretty adaptable leaders out there in the field, but they were doing that in the absence of doctrine. And, and the, the fact that uh, once General Petraeus put his hands on it, it only took a year to get that through the system really is a successful failure. It shows that he had to break every rule in the doctrine development process to to push that through. And even that was, you know, essentially five years after the beginning of the conflict uh, in at least part of the theater out there. So it's a, it's an interesting set of observations that how, how slow that process is and how much pressure that puts on people out in the field who are actually executing and trying to figure it out on their own. Uh, a successful failure, I think that's a perfect phrase to sort of um, encapsulate or to, to sort of capture the essence of, of how it came into being. I want to come back to that uh, and how, and you know, the examples that you used of people sort of coming up in the absence of overarching doctrine, coming up kind of with their own set of solutions, um, almost, almost like micro doctrine uh, that they applied themselves and how that feeds into you know, bottom-up and versus top-down uh, adaptation. Uh, but I want to shift gears first to technology. Um, one of the examples that you use is the fielding of the MRAP, the mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicle. Uh, I was in Baghdad in 2008. Uh, we got ours in January 2008. But, you know, the way that you sort of uh, depict the situation was one of a lot of soldiers being... Um, killed and wounded by a weapon that we did not foresee, who, the presence of which we did not foresee on the battlefield. Um, talk a little bit about how the MRAP represents sort of uh, um, an example maybe of, of, of strong technological adaptation. Well, it, it obviously was the right vehicle to address the threat that was being posed by IEDs uh, because, you know, the, the physics of it, right? You have a V-shaped hull at the bottom. And so if there's a blast from underneath, that energy that comes up is then dissipated by that V-shaped hull at the bottom rather than going straight up into the vehicle, which is what was happening, uh, you know, until those vehicles were fielded, which was killing and wounding a tremendous number of, of people. It's really a story about an institutional failure, though, because the the Army and the Marine Corps were both very aware that this kind of vehicle existed. It had been around since the 1970s, uh, pioneered in, in South Africa, and had been understood in the U.S. military, particularly for its ability to deal with mines during the Cold War. But what happened in the Iraq War in particular, where the IEDs really came out first, was the commanders on the ground, at both at the tactical level and even at the theater level here, understood what this threat meant and that there was a way to solve it. But no one who was back home in the Pentagon did, right? Because the services have a responsibility towards the future, not towards current soldiers, you know, people in the current fight. That's the job of the combatant commanders to oversee the current fight. And what essentially happened is the service chiefs and senior leaders in the Pentagon did not want to invest any money in procuring the MRAPs, even though they would no, very clearly save lives on the battlefield, because they thought that it would threaten their investments in the JLTV, their next follow-on vehicle, that they thought they would need more for future conflicts. And seeing Afghanistan and Iraq as not central conflicts, as sort of things that you know were going on but were not existential threats, they didn't want to put any money into procuring MRAPs, even though Congress had pretty much given them a blank check to get the kinds of equipment that they needed for the war. And so it took the personal intervention of then Secretary of Defense Bob Gates over the advice of every single member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to say, we are going to prioritize these vehicles and we are going to send them to the theater as quickly as possible to save lives because we shouldn't be worrying about what was then the future JLTV, which in 2005 was 10 years away from being fielded in, at the expense of something that would save lives on the battlefield. So it's really an indictment of the senior leaders of the military for prioritizing future needs above what soldiers who were engaged in the battle on the front lines every day really needed most. 
Yeah, yeah, I would add. I came back from Afghanistan in May of 2005, and uh, next the next month joined the Army staff in a uh, non-operational kind of a job, looking you know overseeing installations for the Army. But I sat on in all the big meetings with uh, all the senior generals on the Army staff, uh, and I was shocked how little attention was being given to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan relative to thinking about what was going to come next, what the wars of the future would be like. This is during the midst of a war that had been ongoing again, for uh, four years to one theater and uh, two and a half years in the other, in which, you know, a lot of American soldiers, army soldiers and Marines were losing their lives every single day. But there was a there was almost a, a willful attention to thinking that war was going to get over here soon and we need to move on to what's next. And, and that, that, that the, the terminology that you use, in fact, in terms of supporting what U.S. Central Command, CENTCOM, was asking for was feeding the monster that was how CENTCOM was characterized uh, within the Army at that time, that, hey, there's, this is a huge distraction from the things that we want to get done in the Army, and it's taking resources, it's, we're losing people. And so there was just an institutional unwillingness to make this the top priority when there were other competing demands out there. And as uh, Nora pointed out, you know, there was no belief that the, the MRAPs could have any role in this future warfare, that the future warfare was going to require a lighter, faster, more nimble vehicle. And the MRAPs were single purpose and they were really expensive. They were going to eat up the budget. And so there was just virtually no institutional support to get those on a large scale, despite the, the casualties, which continued to rise in the years after that. And what explains that sort of you know, fixation on the horizon and preparation for future conflict when we're in the middle of, of two, you know, very real conflicts at the time. Is it is it budgetary processes? Is it, you know, this idea that, well, we need to, you know, we need to lock in long-term funding for these big projects to kind of protect our turf and these budgetary turf wars and the MRAP is going to be great. We might be able to get it funded, but that'll all go away and that's something that we lose. What is it? Well, it's a, it's a number of things. I mean, I think it, at its core, it goes down to the difference between what a combatant command does and what the services are charged with, right? The combatant commands are charged with fighting the wars of today and the near-term immediate future. They have that present focus. That's what they're designed to do. But the services, as, as we all know in, in this field, they organize, train, and equip for the future. They're not involved in today's fight. They don't have a direct stake in today's fight. They're charged with preparing for tomorrow. And so I think, you know, that explains their longer term vision. They didn't want to sacrifice that for what was going on in the present because they saw their long term plans being threatened. Uh, but I also think, as, as Dave mentioned, there was an unwillingness to recognize that these wars could go on. And, and this is where there was a failure of adaptability and a failure of imagination among the senior leaders in the Pentagon. They, despite the evidence that the wars were not going well, especially in 2006 in Iraq, right? Every metric was getting worse that year. You know, every week there was worse and worse news coming out of Iraq. It still did not penetrate that these wars were something that had to be focused on now, that the exigencies of protecting people on the battlefield uh, had to happen now. I think that particularly in the case of the Army and to a lesser extent the Marine Corps, that's a hangover from the lessons that they learned after Vietnam about not getting involved in messy political reconstruction types of things like the counterinsurgency efforts were in Iraq and Afghanistan and focusing on big warfare, major conventional warfare on a, on a battlefield uh, was so deeply uh, ensconced in that generation of leaders. I think that many of them couldn't get beyond that to recognize how urgent the situation was today as well. Yeah, I think I'd add that uh, they were also clearly of the view that these are not existential conflicts. Uh, and therefore, the service had to be ready for the existential conflict whenever that happened against whoever that might be. And it was almost it's hard to put ourselves back 15, 16 years ago in 2005 and realize how impossible it would have been for people to think that we could have lost either of those conflicts. I mean, we had invaded Iraq. We, we took out Saddam Hussein and removed his army and took him out of power in six weeks. And that was only a year before this, right? And so the idea that, that the U.S. military could be somehow upended and defeated by a threat that wasn't even imagined in 2003, uh, it was impossible to comprehend. And Afghanistan was such a slow boil that it was not really viewed seriously in the same way either. So I think the idea, you know, in World War II, you know, I think uh, actually Senator Joe Biden made this point that, you know, 
nobody in the army in World War II said, why, don't, why are we buying so many landing craft for this D-Day invasion? We're, we're not going to be able to use them in 1946. Mm-hmm. Nobody cared about what 1946 was going to look like because you were in the midst of a, you know, an existential conflict for the nation. You were going to put all of your resources against that problem of today. That certainly is not, has not been the case in Iraq and Afghanistan. And it is so there's been a tremendous tension in the services between how much do we actually invest in this war that we think is going to go away and is not really vital to you know, our long term national interest when there's these other threats out there versus, you know, pushing our investments off to the future and minimizing our investment in the wars of today. And the cost of that were pretty serious, critical in terms of the number of people that died. And we point this out not only with MRAPs, but also with the Army's intelligence system, which is almost a mirror image of this same problem. Uh, we focus on in, in Afghanistan, in that particular case where leaders pushed a dysfunctional system that was designed for the wars of the future, even though they had a highly functional capability in their hands. Marines had it in their hands, special operators had it in their hands, and the Army senior leadership just suppressed the ability of units of the field to get that, even though they desperately needed it. So we've kind of touched on two of the three sort of pillars of this framework, doctrine and technology. Um it strikes me that just as you said, there's clearly a leadership umbrella over both of those. You mentioned the importance of Petraeus in in uh, you know helping to put together and and get the uh, counterinsurgency field manual out. Uh, you mentioned individuals who sort of um, crafted in the absence of 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 doctrine, crafted their own sort of solutions. Um, and then with the MRAP, you talked about Secretary Gates. So leadership is clearly something that impacts on all this. So we don't necessarily, I don't necessarily want to go into the section on leadership, although I will tell you that that's probably the section that resonated the most with me. It was one that just sort of struck me that, you know, from essentially whether you're a company commander or a corps commander in the army, how much of an impact you can have on creating a force that is able to adapt when, when, um, when circumstances require it. But I do want to ask that, you know, without going into any of the examples into there necessarily, kind of a more theoretical question about what makes a leader adaptable and what makes a leader capable of leading an adaptable organization? What are the hallmarks of that sort of personality and command uh, style? Yeah, that's a $64,000 question for sure. an organization, in this case, the Army, that is devoted to leader development that puts an incredible amount of resources against that and talks about it all the time and you know holds it up as something that it does very, very well all the time. And, and I think the it, it, the record is mixed on that, frankly. And at the senior level, I think it's extremely mixed, as we pointed out in our uh, our case studies from Iraq and Afghanistan, both. But what makes a leader adaptable is perhaps different at different levels. I, I would say that the, the, t- the leaders that are tactically adaptable, that the, the Army, the Marine Corps, probably do a better job of preparing their junior leaders to be adaptable in some ways uh, because they put them in environments and training where they have to deal with uncertainty, where they have to deal with, in some cases, overwhelming enemy capabilities. I'm thinking the combat training centers now, mm-hmm. like National Training Center for the Army or Marine Corps Air Ground Combat Center out at 29 Palms for the Marines, where, where leaders get put through the ringer uh, with their lieutenants or captains or majors or lieutenant colonels. And, and so they, in, in a sense, when they're in an operational kind of environment, that there is actually a pretty good effort made to try and make them as resilient as possible and adaptable to the circumstances they'll face there on the battlefield. And, and, it, and it, to, to their credit, the services can identify you know, who, who can do that, who can't do that, and they work to make people better who have difficulty with that. So there, there's some degree of model there that I think we, we actually reflect in the book that we found a lot of examples, and we highlight several, of really good tactical adaptability by leaders out there. Uh, and the, that I think the services, again, their systems help develop that, help grow those capabilities. But it's, it's, a, it's effectively a trial, trial and error. It's a developmental process. It, it requires leaders to be given the opportunity to exercise initiative. And this starts getting into more senior commanders as they grow up. But I think the area where, where it's most problematic is how do you identify and grow adaptable senior leaders? And the identification part is an interesting one, which is somebody's going to pick that theater commander. Somebody is going to pick, you know, that division commander, that core commander that's going to fight in that conflict, you know, next year, two years from now, three years from now. What degree of rigor is there in looking at their ability to function under stress, their ability to adapt in circumstances that are not like what they expected? How, how do you actually measure them when you send them out to do that? You know, again, we used uh, examples in Iraq and Afghanistan of uh, David McKiernan and George Casey uh, and looking at who was evaluating how they were doing and making decisions about their adaptability. In Casey's 
uh, particular situation, he was the overall U.S. commander in Iraq for just under four years or three and three quarters years. And, mm-hmm. you know, we cite a lot of detail of how badly the war was going during that time. Who, who was actually going back in and saying, wait a minute, maybe there is a problem with this leader's adaptability and maybe we need to, to rethink this and move him out? Yeah, and if I could jump in on that, what what we conclude was General Casey's deepest weakness there was that he never questioned his own assumptions. And I think that's not uncommon among senior military leaders. He came in with some very strong views from his personal experience in, in Bosnia in particular that he talks about in, in the memoirs that he wrote um, about the United States not getting too invested in other countries' problems and in letting them develop them on their own. The problem wasn't that he had those assumptions going in, right? You never know what the right assumptions are. The problem was he never updated them, even in the you know increasingly accumulating evidence over the subsequent three years that his approach was not working. I think it's a not uncommon trait in people in the military if something isn't working to say, just do it harder. We're just not applying enough effort. Um, and sometimes that's what you need to get to mm. the answer. But sometimes it obscures the fact that you're doing the wrong thing in the first place. And, and that's what I think was most unfortunate about his tenure is he just kept doubling down on the same approach, which was keeping U.S. forces out of the cities, keeping them on remote bases and basically refusing to engage with the population. So uh, when you ask, you know, what is the most important characteristic of an adaptable leader, I would say the, the willingness to thoroughly question your assumptions, to be aware of what they are, and to be willing to say what would invalidate them, or, you know, at, at a certain point, if the evidence is coming in, instead of saying, let's just do what we're doing more, to think much more quickly about, okay, what if this isn't working? What are our second, third, fourth options for trying to deal with this problem. For an organization that prides itself on, on uh, planning for many different contingencies, it's, it's really sometimes quite surprising to me how much senior military leaders don't apply that to their own thinking about how they're approaching their own operations. I'd add one more thing to that, I think, which is the ability and the insistence on continually reassessing the situation that you're in. Uh, I can remember going and talking with the Army Special Operations Command commander right after the uh, October 1993 uh, battle in Mogadishu. And uh, I was a Ranger Battalion commander at the time. And I remember him telling me that the the U.S. military and, and even Army Special Operations organizations don't do well when the what the military calls the MET-T changes, when the mission, the enemy, the troops, the time available, when that changes from your initial set, that the U.S. military often doesn't change with it, that it continues to drive on doing what it was doing without reassessing the situation as it's evolved and doing that on a recurrent basis. Lots, that's a difficult thing for commanders to do. They'll, they'll get wedded to their plan, to their, their approach. Uh, and when the, you know, when the battle is moving in a different direction, particularly in a long-term fight like a counterinsurgency, failing to do that uh, inevitably turns out badly. Nora, I think that your uh, it also resonated with you when you described, you know, there's a tendency, uh, I think, among men and women in uniform to to sometimes when you run into a problem and your solution isn't working to to double down on your solution and, you know, hammer harder, run faster, uh, whatever it takes, because that is sort of the mentality, which is, as you said, is is great in some situations, but not in others. Uh, Dave, I, I'm curious about, you know, the you talked about General Casey's example, which I think is a really interesting case study just because he was in country in that role for as long as he was, um, that you said that there, that, you know, there were, there were assumptions that didn't get questioned necessarily. I'm curious about, you know, in your experiences, when you were, when you were commander of combined forces, command Afghanistan, who, you know, what's the process, you know, in such a senior leadership, operational leadership role, you know, what would have made you question your assumptions? Are there are there people in your command team? Is it on you to kind of surround yourself with people who are going to do that, whether or not it's, you know, uh, members of your staff, you know, your senior enlisted leaders, uh, a SIG or a CAG? Um, you know, what is what what would have made you question some of your assumptions, or maybe what did make you? Well, that was actually something we we built into our process, and I, I would start by saying that uh, I did not have a conventional staff. Uh, by any normal metrics. Uh, when I got to Afghanistan, my staff was six people. Uh, and, and six months later, it was about 100 people. By the time I left, it was maybe just over 400 people. So relative to like uh, MNFI staff in Iraq, which would have been 
several thousand and mm-hmm. later ISAF staffs, et cetera, which would have been very large. I had a very small, relatively small staff, and it was most efficient probably when it was about 200, interestingly enough, in my opinion. But, so one of the things we could do is we could do a lot more face-to-face with the commander and staff principals and key staff players. And, and typically once a week uh, on a kind of a, a low battle rhythm day, we would get a whiteboard out and I would actually walk through what I was seeing and hearing in Afghanistan and challenge people to think about what's going on. And one, one of my, my, my standing rules there was if we're, we're not relooking what's going on in this country every six weeks, we will lose track of what's actually happening on the ground out there. What's happening politically, what's happening in the economy, what's happening you know, with your adversary, what's happening with the other ethnic groups. And so I said every six weeks, and that's a, that's a fairly tight turn in terms of any military organization is trying to lay out a strategy. But, but the point of that was less the timeline than the fact that we've got to continually reassess what's happening here. Because I, I was watching it change because I was very plugged into U.S. Embassy and to the Afghan government and to the senior leadership in the, uh, the Afghan you know, Ministry of Defense and the Afghan president and our ambassador, who was very close with both of them. So I could actually see things happening that were not visible in the military domain. And it really gave me a, an impetus to continue to relook what we were doing and make sure that we were staying on track and making changes and adjustments as we needed to. And I, that was, again, uncommon. It was, was not, it was built on an uncommon staff structure as well. We had no CAG. There was no, you know, initiative group. You know, I think I had four or five SAMS guys total at the high hmm. watermark on my staff, often just two of them. And so it was a, it was a very lean effort. And in some ways that worked to our advantage, I thought. I remember being shocked the first time, not only that I saw Al-Fal Palace, the headquarters of MNFI, uh, but even Multinational Division Baghdad. What a massive building and how many people were on a division staff there um, in in 2008. So I want to, you know, many of your examples come from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. uh, For probably obvious reasons, it's relevant because it's, you know, recent or current. Um, And but you also have some examples from Vietnam. You also cite some examples from, you know, World War II and taking all of that, um, you know, you know, say a century or so of, of military adaptation examples, both successful and, uh, and unsuccessful. If you take kind of the lessons learned from there and project forward, do the challenges to adaptability in the military become more difficult? You know, I'm thinking specifically about, for example, uh, you know, the pace of technological change, um, how that is becoming increasingly rapid while, you know, our, our acquisitions and procurement timelines are still, you know, long-term 10, 15 years, a generation or more. Um, what are some of the other examples of ways that maybe adaptability is going to be further challenged by the future sort of global operating environment? Yeah, there are a lot of different answers to that. And and one of the things that we argue in the book is that there's always some need to adapt, right? You never predict the next war correctly. But we argue that what we call the adaptation gap, the degree to which you actually have to adapt, is actually growing quite quickly. And so the U.S. military in particular is going to need to adapt faster uh, than ever before because Again, that gap, that that difference between what is assumed is going to happen and what will actually happen on the future battlefield is growing so substantially. Part of it is because, as you said, of the pace of technological change. Uh, Things are happening so rapidly now in advanced technologies that have military applications uh, that uh, you know, we, we're just really at the beginning of the exponential technological curve and a lot of uh, technologies that will prove revolutionary on the battlefield, like hypersonics and unmanned systems and, and things like that. We talk about also the advent of two entirely new domains of warfighting in outer space and in cyberspace. There's no history of military operations there upon which to draw. Um, and so the, the fact that that Whereas for history, we only had two warfighting domains for most of human history, you know, in land and sea. And then in the past 125 years, we added the air one to add two, no, two new domains of warfighting where we really don't know what's going to happen and how things are going to play out is also affecting that. And then I think finally, the United States is a global power. And that means that especially at a time of great geostrategic uncertainty today, the reassertion of great power competition and potentially conflict, the range of things that the United States military needs to be prepared to do is also growing. We often get asked, well, you know, isn't the U.S. military better at adapting than the Russian military or the Chinese military? And the answer to that might well be yes, 
But if you're the Chinese military, you know what you're planning for. It's a large-scale contingency against the United States if the United States reacts to events in the Asia-Pacific theater. If you're Russia, you know what you're planning against. You're planning against the possibility of the United States intervening uh, to save its NATO allies in some sort of conflict there. If you're the United States, you don't know if you're fighting China or Russia or North Korea or Iran or some other country that is as inconceivable to us today as it was to fight in Afghanistan on September 10th, 2001. And we now have the whole conflict spectrum happening at once with the gray zone warfare and combining of traditional military challenges with non-traditional asymmetric approaches. So, you know, the U.S. military is probably more adaptable than any of our adversaries, but the degree to which the U.S. military is going to have to adapt is so much greater in the coming world that this is why we're, we're so very concerned that the U.S. military is not adaptable enough for the challenges that it will face. Yeah, I think I would add as well that uh, we're, I, I would expect to see the next war to be one to, to be fought at a speed that we have never seen before, that the the velocity of the conflict itself combined with what I suspect will be uh, a great deal of shock and surprise imposed on the United States at the beginning of that conflict. I think we, we vastly underestimate the degree to which we are going to be surprised by weaponry, tactics, capabilities, uh, movement by our adversary in the next conflict, especially if it's China. Uh, and then trying to see how you're going to adapt, knowing that your industrial base is sclerotic, that your acquisition process is you know mired in quicksand, and that this war could play out in a matter of days or weeks, at least in the maybe decisive opening engagements that could you know, actually chart how the war is going to conclude. I, we also have argued and written that we think the next major power conflict is going to be a prolonged conflict, a prolonged war, meaning multiple years. Uh, and the United States doesn't think that way anymore, isn't prepared for that, hasn't really thought that entirely through. But, but those first battles are going to be extremely important and, and they will set the tone for what happens next. And I think the U.S. military is not prepared for the degree of shock it may have to endure during those battles. So what do you do with that? If you're not going to be able to generate new weaponry overnight, if you're not going to be able to you know, turn on your production of advanced weapon, weapons and missiles you know, instantaneously, what do you do? Well, you have to think about how you're going to fight your current weaponry differently if it's not working effectively. You may have to reorganize on the fly and come up with different combinations of units from what you went into the war on day one with that might be more agile, lighter, uh, more ad hoc, be able to you know get things done without having anything new on your shelf because you're probably going to fight, I would say, the first weeks, if not longer, the first months of the next war with existing weaponry and existing capabilities. And you're going to have to think about you know your command and control if you're going to flatten out your organization in a way that changes really what looks like a World War II organizational structure for most parts of our U.S. military in an environment where speed is going to be extraordinarily important. And speed of decision making is going to be very, very, very critical and, and you know, is probably going to quickly be influenced by artificial intelligence and machine learning in ways we've never seen before. So there's a huge amount of unknown that we can expect to see at the beginning of this next conflict. And, and I, you know, both uh, Nor and I are very concerned. And one of the reasons we wrote this book is we're very concerned that we are underestimating the challenge of adapting to that kind of an environment. So I'm going to ask you, um, I think probably author's least favorite question, uh, the equivalent of, you know, what's the best part of your book or the most important part of your book? And I'll, I'll, I'll put a little bit finer point on it, I think. But if you were, you know, king or queen for a day, um, or, or say you were, you know, president, secretary of defense and chairman of both armed services committees for a day, it's not enough time. You're not a magician. You can't fix everything. But if you could just redirect institutional energy towards something in kind of a lasting manner in order to create a more adaptable force going forward, which area would that be? And Nora, maybe we'll start with you. We talked about this between us, actually, when we were writing the last chapter of the book, which includes our recommendations for the future. Um, and I think the one of the ones that we think is the most important, that if we were Secretary of Defense for a day, is investing in more and different kinds of senior leader development and education, particularly in professional military education even though we come up with recommendations to improve the processes for developing doctrine, for uh, establishing uh, new types of technologies, we think all of that's important. But at the end of the day, because leaders matter so much, 
training them for for uncertainty, getting them to understand what that's like, to to question their assumptions, to really think about warfare at the strategic level. That's where the United States has fallen the most short in recent wars. And we think professional military education is not sufficiently designed to promote those characteristics. Part of that is because uh, the environment in a PME setting is very, very homogenous by its very nature. You know, the war colleges all talk about how diverse they are uh, because they have many international students, but those students are still military. They share a military point of view. And there are some civilians, uh, you know, who attend. But really, people who are in the defense establishment are not almost by their very nature unable to think more broadly and outside it. You know, we teach uh, at Johns Hopkins SICE, and we very often have uh, serving active duty military officers taking our, our graduate level classes. But they're in a classroom with people who don't look like them. They're in classrooms with 22-year-olds who are just out of college to people who don't, uh, don't know anybody who served in the military, have a, maybe have a development background or something like that, and think very, very differently about national security problems. We find that there's not enough of that kind of education that goes on for military officers as they're developing throughout their careers. It's one of the reasons that we think professional military education itself needs to be strengthened, but that we also argue that more uh, rising military leaders need to get civilian graduate degrees in a range of fields because exposing them to civilian professors, to students who don't think like they do, who will challenge their their worldview and teach them for about different perspectives, that is absolutely invaluable for entering a world of the kind of rapid change where things are much less certain that we've been talking about here. And we don't think uh, enough military officers get the experience of actually doing that. Everybody who sits in a PME classroom, even though they look diverse in terms of thinking about problems and creative problem solving, they all come from the same background. And that's problematic because that's exactly the skills that need to be developed. Yeah, I think building on that, and this is really immediate, I'd say something in the next year to two years that should become a focus of uh, of this Pentagon with with this leadership and, and really extending beyond the Pentagon as well. Is first, I think that the military needs to really embark on a very aggressive program of experimentation and exercises against a very serious red team that's very diverse, that has a lot of cyber capabilities, that has Chinese experts, has Russian experts in an unconstrained environment that, that actually puts the U.S. military under the gun and causes it to have to react in an exercise environment uh, and to some degree spinning off some experimentation on some of its new weaponry and its current emerging ideas like multi-domain operations to put those to the test and really put the military through a ringer here in both exercises, field exercises, and then the second aspect being war games to actually, you know, the, 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 the speed and the frequency of very robust, very realistic war games uh, that involve all the services, uh, all of their capabilities at the joint level is pretty modest, to say the least. And, and it's, I think I personally think it's, it's less than it was at the end of the Cold War and in the 1990s today. And partly because of the fo- focus on counterinsurgency for 20 years where we didn't really have to do any of those things. We don't know what we don't know. And we, we have not exercised the U.S. military against a really tough, harsh, challenging uh, adversary with a lot of high-tech capabilities. And it's time to put it through that ringer again and again and again and find out what, what works, what does, or what breaks, how to, how to build this, build resilience. This also has the benefit of helping build your leaders, you know, thinking about how they're going to function under stress, how they're going to adapt under, you know, really difficult circumstances out there. And then building on that as well, I think that a, a, a broader wargaming effort that involves not only the Defense Department, but also draws in the senior, senior leaders of the U.S. government to once a year or so, twice a year, to actually put principles involved with a war game against a major power conflict in China or in Russia and put people through a realistic series of events of what could happen in the United States and get them thinking about how they would decide. And there would be insights that came from that that would direct some of these resources to improve obvious shortfalls where the U.S. is immensely vulnerable today. And senior leaders, senior elected leaders really don't have, I think, a visceral understanding of that. So that would be my recommendation that both in the military 
in the exercising and experimentation mode to find out what works and start investing in, in the people that can do that and the capabilities and using your current capabilities differently in different scenarios. And then in the more senior levels of uh, senior officials outside the Pentagon in a wartime setting just to understand what could be involved in a major conflict with a, a major peer competitor out there. I'd just like to add, the composition of the red teams for that is absolutely crucial, right? Who constitutes most of the red teams in U.S. exercises? It's retired officers, right? You cannot have an effective red team when it's all made up of retired officers. I want an 18 or 22-year-old on that red team to figure out what the cyber effects are going to be, how a creative youngster thinks about cyber, not somebody who's 50 or 55 and has served in the military, right? That the red teams have to be much more diverse in their composition to realistically portray what a thinking adaptable adversary could be doing in a future conflict. Yeah, that circles back to um, one of the things that you mentioned, which was um, the importance of kind of putting tactical level units and leaders through the ringer, so to speak, at the combat training centers. Um, I had a chance uh, very recently to talk to Brigadier General Dave Doyle, the commander of JRTC, and we talked a little bit about the importance of failure. It was sort of spurred by a Twitter exchange that I saw uh, a couple months ago, actually, Now that, but it stuck with me about the importance of failure, how important it is to fail in that environment. And, and it does sort of strike me that we stop kind of exposing some senior leaders uh, to that failure in an in, in exercise, a war game that not only exposes them to it, but congressional leaders, other policy leaders um, would be could have kind of a remarkable effect. I think maybe a good start uh, would be to... Uh, send a bunch of copies of your book to a bunch of these people, because I think probably the, the greatest strength of the book, and I did really enjoy it, is that um, anybody who reads it can sort of project themselves, especially if you're in the military or in the defense establishment, can project yourself into some of these situations. And you really start to kind of think about, about adaptation and the mindset that is required, uh, the sort of leadership characteristics that are required in order to, uh, to make that happen. And so if it does, you know, if it does help sort of create uh, a shift in mindset among some of the readers uh, who are going to be leaders, who either are or are going to be leaders in, in the U.S. military going forward. I think that uh, it will have served uh, a very commendable purpose. So Nora and Dave, thank you so much for joining me. Again, it was a fascinating book. I, I think the readers will really enjoy reading it. I think our listeners will really enjoy hearing from you uh, about a pretty important topic. So thank you. Thanks, John. We enjoyed it a lot. Great discussion. Yes. Thanks again. Hey, thank you so much for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again. Thanks again.